When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Do you know a student getting ready to go to college? Or are you looking at going back to school yourself? The Woodward Hines Education Foundation and the Get to College program help more Mississippians get to and through college to get certificates and degrees that lead to meaningful employment. They offer free college planning advice, including hands-on FAFSA completion assistance through in-person or virtual appointments. Visit gettocollege.org to learn more. Good morning. It's 8.30 on Wednesday, March 8th. I'm Desiree Frazier. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show... As another deadline day in the legislature approaches, a number of bills get advanced, including postpartum Medicaid expansion. Then the mayor of Jackson discusses his relationship with the federally appointed manager of the water system. Plus, this week's History is Lunch examines the tacky South. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Lawmakers are advancing a number of bills this week as they approach another major deadline day in the state legislature. Among them is a bill that will direct the Division of Medicaid to extend postpartum coverage to 12 months. The current policy ends at eight weeks. Pressure has been mounting as members of the medical community have pushed lawmakers for the extension, especially following the reversal of Roe v. Wade. House Republican Missy McGee of Hattiesburg, who saw her own effort die in the House Medicaid Committee, presented Senate Bill 2212. I know many in this body have heard about this issue and have been asked about this issue. Know that I bring it to you today. And ask for your support for it because I truly believe that it is the right thing to do for both babies and women. I don't believe that issues surrounding the health of babies both born and unborn or women's health should ever be political chess pieces that we find ourselves often living in that political reality in these times. This bill reflects a policy and a legislative effort that has been ongoing for several years now. And this year, as we find ourselves in a post-Dobbs era, the need extent exists to both strengthen the social safety net and modernize our approach for helping our state's most vulnerable citizens. I've often heard the statement that Mississippi takes pride in being the safest state for a baby to be born. This bill demonstrates that we, as policymakers, also recognize that our commitment to life cannot end once the baby takes his or her first breath and is outside of the womb because we know that healthy moms equal healthy babies. If we care about babies, we must show that we care for and value their mothers, who in most cases are their primary caregivers. Women who suffer from physical or mental challenges after giving birth also have challenges when it comes to caring for their babies. By extending postpartum care to 12 months, this legislation delivers a very important cost-effective approach to delivering care. 
12-month postpartum care reduces potential future preterm births by increasing the spacing of pregnancies and improving the health of moms. By providing a year of postpartum care, we prioritize the prevention of premature births and improving maternal health. Last week, the state of Wyoming passed legislation authorizing 12 months of postpartum care. Mississippi now stands as the only state in our country that has failed to make an effort toward extending these benefits for postpartum women. Following a couple of questions and a failed motion to table, the House passed the measure 89 to 29. It now heads to the desk of Governor Tate Reeves, who last month said he now supports the postpartum extension and would sign the legislation to that effect. In the Senate, more changes were made to House Bill 1020. The original version created a special court jurisdiction within the city of Jackson with appointed judges and prosecutors. Yesterday, members advanced a new version of that bill, one that removes that language and focuses on codifying temporary judges and assistance for the public defender's office. Still, members of the Jackson delegation, like Senator John Horn, a Democrat, remain opposed. The state says that it, it wants to help Hines County and help Jackson. Well, then help and, and don't hurt. The bills and the legislation being proposed by a lot of our well-meaning colleagues from other places around Mississippi are not being helpful. They are hurtful because they're being drawn up without any input, any consideration or involvement of the local elected officials, both in the legislature and at the local level. We should be coming together to solve our problems and challenges, not tearing each other apart. If you want to help, sit down and communicate with us. Maybe we'll find out that we have problems getting mental health evaluations from the state hospital or getting folks beds at, at the state hospital. Maybe we'll find out uh, that getting evidence from JPD is a part of the problem and, and an issue. Maybe we'll find out that the current structure <coughs> cannot absorb five appointed judges or elected judges without significant improvements in courtroom space, court reporters, court administrators, and other support personnel needed to make a court system work. Maybe we'll find out that the state crime lab is just as inefficient in Hines County as it is in the rest of the state. Instead of trying to push us around and disenfranchise us, you might try offering us resources. Debate on the bill took roughly four hours. Judiciary A Committee Chair Bryce Wiggins, a Republican from Pascagoula, shepherded the measure through the Senate, presented the bill, and commended the process. It's been a long but a good debate. First, I want to say to Senator Horn and what he recognized, I want to thank this body for this professional and the debate and how we handled this. And I want to thank and appreciate the Jackson delegation for their input into what went in. We understand we may have differences of opinion, but we can debate and we can address it, and that's a good thing. And please make no mistake, we all know the nation is watching. They have been. And with this bill, we are standing up for the citizens of Jackson and for our state capital. 
Many of the Jackson delegation has been up here before saying, we're the state capital, we're proud of it. We want y'all's help. Well, this is the help we're giving. Senator Wiggins says some members of the House approve of the changes made by the Senate, and he estimates the measure will go to conference for further debate. Coming up, the mayor of Jackson discusses his relationship with the federally appointed manager of the water system. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Hi, I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart, professor of internal medicine and pediatrics at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. On the original Southern Remedy, we answer questions about all aspects of your health and share some of the latest medical information in the news. You can listen to the show on Wednesdays at 11 on MPB Think Radio, or you can subscribe to the podcast by searching for Southern Remedy on your preferred podcasting app. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Desiree Frazier. The federally appointed third-party manager of Jackson's water system is engaging the community as he finalizes his financial plan. The keystone to his proposal is a billing system based on property value rather than metered consumption. This has received resistance in the Mississippi legislature where a bill was introduced to compel water utilities to implement metered billing. Yesterday, speaking on a panel at Millsaps College, Hennepin said repairing the system is not the biggest challenge. You know, the technical part of this is actually not going to be that hard. You know, if that was the only part of this job that I had to come in and, and work on, um, life would be pretty easy. The challenge is really the people. It's always that way. If we didn't have to deal with people, uh, us engineers would have a great, great world. Uh, but We've got a couple big challenges ahead of us, and, and one is, you know, I've been dropped in from my life in Virginia and my history in the utility business to Jackson, trying to learn the, the people and the culture, but I'm not going to be here forever, and, and I'm immediately working on an exit strategy. And so when we talk about governance, it's about how do I extract myself from Jackson Water and leave it in a very functional sustainable position going forward, not where it was before. One of the people Hennepin has been most closely working with over the last several months is Jackson Mayor Shokwe Antar Lamumba. Our Michael Gidry talked to the mayor about his relationship with the man tasked with restoring the city's water system. Ted and I meet frequently. We, we have a standing meeting that happens every Monday. Uh, and invariably throughout the week, we typically have multiple discussions over uh, various issues and, and really still trying to build the foundation of what all of this looks like. Uh, so Mr. Hennepin is a passionate guy. Uh, I think he, be, he believes sincerely in uh, not only uh, making sure that, that the appropriate work goes into the system, uh, but he, he looks through it. Uh, looks at it from an equity lens, um, and that is important to me. Uh, Jackson is a city where uh, a large number of our residents are below the poverty uh, line. Uh, Jackson's also a city uh, which, you know, through the needs of, of decades of repair, uh, affordability is going to be largely uh, a centerpiece of, of the question. Uh, we can't tax our way out of this. We can't loan our way out of this uh, because, you know, we are at 
our debt capacity. And so it, that's what makes it such a difficult equation to figure out over all these years. And so uh, understanding those things, I think he, he approaches the question not only in a creative sense, uh, but in a um, sincere way of, of how do we get through all of those those challenges. And that's part of what I'd like to ask you about, um, this creative way and this way of, of um, understanding the multiple factors that have led to to the city's water system getting the way it is. Uh, he has proposed uh, a property value-based billing system. Uh, he has said that part of that reason is because uh, some of the metering can't be trusted. Uh, this has received some backlash, um, and in the legislature, uh, there's currently you know bills making its way um, uh, through the Capitol that would require the city of Jackson uh, and all other municipalities uh, to bill on metering. Why is it uh, in your conversations with him and and in this as as your in, in your capacity as mayor, uh, why is seeking solutions like this, creative solutions like this, uh, important when it comes to uh, the continued development and improvement of the water system? Well, well, first and foremost, I think that, um, you know, there was a premature rush to defeat uh, the ideas that, that Ted was, uh, you know, kind of investigating. Uh, Ted mentioned to me this notion of, of potentially being able to do that and mentioned a few communities that he knew had done a similar program uh, based on home values or, or size of homes. Uh, but he didn't even get to the point or the phase of truly being able to do the investigation before the state preemptive action began, right? Uh, and, and so, you know, you know, I truly am unable to have a definitive stance in terms of whether I agree or disagree with it uh, because uh, it didn't even get to the phase where, where he could have proposed how he saw it working, uh, what caps there would have been to make certain that uh, certain communities were, were not uh, made to pay a, a, a high tariff, uh, a significantly high tariff. Uh, so all of those details weren't even worked out, uh, you know, for him to submit a plan or proposal in that regard to me um, before preemption. So it's, it's very difficult to speak to the merits. What we have found through these these challenges over the years are not only a problem that persists within community where individuals are are left with a significant burden and, and real questions over how they pay their water bills. You've lost revenue in the city that we would be able to use to contribute to our challenges, right? As we envision a path moving forward, we have to get uh, the majority, the grand majority of our customers in a position where they can move forward. Um, and so that's why, you know, programs of equity, are important. Uh, that's why, you know, just simply, you know, uh, taxing or, or adding more to people uh, as would as what would take place if you privatize the system because companies don't come in for a benevolent purpose uh, and, and just want to help you out. They come in to exact a profit, right? And the only way they can do that is to raise the rates uh, significantly beyond where they are and, and our challenge with that, while we're open to reasonable rate increases, we're not open to, to one which extends beyond the affordability of our residents. And so the larger question has to, you know, be uh, on the table 
of what does affordability look like? Uh, how do you uh, develop uh, a new culture and, and ability uh, for all residents to pay and contribute to the system's growth and, and upkeep, upkeep and, and maintenance? Shokwe Antar Lumumba is the mayor of Jackson. Coming up, this week's History is Lunch examines the tacky South. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Hi, I'm Jason Klein from Fix It 101. If you ever thought about changing the doorknob or fixing a leaky faucet, some jobs just aren't that difficult, and yes, you can do it. If you want to find out how to do those things, listen to Fix It 101, podcast everywhere. Join us each week for Everyday Tech on MPB Think Radio. We have an IT expert, a computer repair ace, and we troubleshoot your problems on the phones as well. Everyday Tech, Wednesdays at 10 on MPB Think Radio. Download the podcast now or listen on YouTube on the MPB Think Radio channel. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Desiree Frazier. As a way to comment on a person's style or taste, the word tacky has distinctly Southern origins. Those origins are explored in the new book, The Tacky South, by historians Catherine Burnett and Monica Carroll Miller. The two will be presenting today at History is Lunch at the two Mississippi museums. Our Michael Guidry caught up with Katie Burnett to find out more about how tacky entered the lexicon and where their research began. They came from just kind of a random speculation, really on Monica's part, of thinking about, okay, where does tackiness come from? And um, like any good tacky thing, it began with the Oxford English Dictionary. Um, She decided to look up the original origins of an etymology of the word, and um, tackiness actually traces its roots back to the U.S. South, specifically the Appalachian region from the early part of the 19th century, late part of the 18th century, where it was associated with... um, folks who would take care of horses, so tack horses and tackies were usually the folks who would take care of them. But over time, it evolved to become more of a class-associated and socioeconomic um, designator that we more uh, recognize it as today. So then I have to ask, what was it about those tackies, those, those, those workers, that caused this derivative um, to kind of trickle down? Yeah, I think a lot of it had to uh, was associated with race. Um, so usually there were um, white folks, um, and usually a class as well. So it's usually on the lower economic scale. And so a lot of the poor white folks who would take care of the horses would be sort of oftentimes pejoratively referred to, but sometimes just as like a, a basic label referred to as tackies. And then over time, that began to evolve into the adjectival version that we tend to usually um, use it as now, where we refer to things as tacky to refer to something as generally kind of like low class or trashy. And so that kind of racial and class-based origin took on a life of its own, so to speak, from the time period from which it originated but in, and past the actual uh, folks who it usually referred to from there. So that's that's the origin of, of the word and kind of how it's it, it's found its place and in, in, in the way we speak. But the Tacky South and, and the work that you and Monica have done really look at the South and I guess that idea of what is tacky and what isn't tacky and and tell us a little bit more about about this project and and how that came to be um once you started looking at I guess these little uh, as it's been described this this cabinet of curiosities yeah 
Oh, well, we started with that etymological definition um, where Monica and one of our other contributors, Michael Bibler, who contributed a really fabulous essay on the B-52s to the collection, they were looking at the origin just kind of out of curiosity. And when they found out that it had this uh, association with the early part of the 19th century, that's kind of the area that I write about um, in my other uh, research. They reached out to me and they were like, hey, do you want to do something with this? Because this specific etymology really struck us where we were like, why is it so deeply associated with the South? How does that still uh, really shape the way the South is thought about and the South from both an outside in perspective, but an inside out perspective of being of taking on the label of happiness, but also having it being labeled upon things that, that come from the South. And how is it, again, kind of taken on a life of its own? How has it sort of evolved? And what we found in working on the collection is that starting with that one sort of origin point leads you into so many different really interesting directions that really can't be characterized by one thing, where tackiness gets associated with things like, as the cover of our book and the title of our introduction indicates, um, Dolly Parton, but it can also be associated with more serious subject matters, like uh, thinking about the origins of enslavement, of uh, thinking about how uh, representation still shapes the way we think about class and race. And so the collection itself really, it, even though it started from this origin point, it's blossomed into this really interesting and kind of multivalent engagement with the way we think about labels of Southern and labels of class. It, it wasn't until I kind of gave this a, a little a little gander that red velvet cake and and this yeah. and this um, almost binary position on red velvet cake um, is quintessentially southern. It is, what, yeah. and that's I'm glad you brought that up. That's one of my favorite essays. That's by Marshall Armentor, who uh, he's an instructor at University of North Texas, where he does this really amazing job of taking something that's really fun to talk about because he doesn't want to talk about armadillo cake from Steel Magnolias, but then thinking about where it's coming from and how red velvet cake really does have this distinctly uh, Southern origin and Southern history behind it uh, that doesn't get talked about a whole lot. And and then it would be remiss of me to, if we're speaking about Mississippi and we're speaking about how tackiness is maybe perceived or projected uh, to not bring up Elvis and the sequence jumpsuits that uh, he was uh, almost notorious for, where 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 does that intersection occur, and and how does someone who rose to such fame bring along such um, I guess such a descriptor when it comes to his his costuming? Oh yeah, that's a really good question. Well, one thing, a uh, full confession. Monica and I wish we had included more Elvis in this collection. <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll be straightforward <laughs> on that. Um, and you'll see, uh, if you look at any of our contributor bios, for example, um, Charles Reagan Wilson, who is a professor emeritus at um, University of Mississippi, he is, was gracious enough to write the foreword, and he is a big Elvis fan. And he actually has a Velvet Elvis painting <laughs> in, behind him in all of his author bios. Um, so that's one thing that we wish we had explored a little bit more. But I think to answer your question about how does this cultural figure kind of become associated with these sort of tacky representations, the way it ends up manifesting in our collection and a way we would like to bring it in if we were going to do another version of this is to think about how it plays out with Dolly Parton. Um, because in a lot of ways, she and Elvis have had sort of similar trajectories where they've had these long careers where they start off as these kind of like 
you know, new bloods who are bringing um, something kind of different into the particular like music scene that they're entering, um, kind of reach a peak, then go kind of down and then kind of reach a peak again. And we can kind of see something similar happening to, to Dolly currently, where for a while, like in the 90s, she was sort of a punchline, much in the way that later Elvis um, did become, unfortunately, but has kind of had a Dolly font or whatever you want to call it. Um, our introduction to our collection is called What Would Dolly Do? And one of the things that we talk about is that she's having a moment. And I think you kind of see a similar pattern happening with, uh, or has, did happen with Elvis, where he was the guy and then kind of has like a falling off point, but then has had sort of a cultural renaissance but later, you know, posthumously as well. And I think some of it has to do with longevity. Some of it has to do with class. But some of it has to do with that kind of like outside um, sort of overt show that both of them really cultivated as part of their persona as cultural figures and as artists. Well, Katie Burnett of Fisk University, uh, co-editor and contributor of the Tacky South uh, with Monica Carroll Miller. Uh, both of you presenting at History is Lunch at the two Mississippi museums. Uh, it, it sounds fascinating. Uh, it sounds quirky. It sounds um, but but also but also sounds deep and humanizing, and I we appreciate you taking some time uh, to talk to us about your work, and um, we wish you luck at the presentation. Well, thanks so much, Michael. I appreciate you. History is lunch begins at noon at the two Mississippi museums. This has been Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio.